Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. If you have your Bibles, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word when you get there. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Matter of fact, if you look in the CSB or other translations, it'll, it'll, it'll actually say that he found a tree. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. The Lord showed him a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where, they were to, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Almighty Father, we come before you this morning. We ask, Father, that you would implant this word into our hearts and souls. And we ask, God, that you would come to us this morning and that you would cause us to know you better and that you would cause us to understand this word. We ask it in your name. Amen. This morning, I want to preach under the title, When You Come to a Bitter Place. When you come to a bitter place. What I want to tell you this morning is that every single person will encounter a bitter place in their lives. It may be a result of death, divorce, depression, discouragement, or doubt. But eventually, you will come to a place in your life where bitterness is your reality. And the place I'm talking about is a place where you find it hard to find the sweetness in your situation. Tragedy strikes, and all you can do is ask, why me, what if, and what about? I worked the funeral of a man who passed away recently, and he wasn't sick. By all accounts, he was very healthy. His passing was very unexpected. He was leaning back in the recliner at his house watching TV, and his, and his wife was in the kitchen washing dishes, and she poked her head into the living room to see if he wanted her to fix a bite to eat, and she found him dead as a doornail. That family very suddenly had come to a bitter place. And as we read the text, what we find is that Israel had come to a bitter place. They had been saved out of Egypt for three days. Their people had been trapped in bondage for over 400 years before that point. And they just watched Pharaoh's army get swept away and drown in the Red Sea. And what I want to tell you about is the three major ideas this morning that I want us to cover about about bitterness, about coming to a bitter place. 
First of all, I want to tell you that bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. Bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. I also want to tell you that bitterness doesn't have to be your definition. And bitterness doesn't have to be your downfall. I'm going to be all over the Bible this morning. We're going to start in Exodus 15, but then we're going to go into Ruth, and then we're going to go into Hebrews. Normally what I'll do is I'll break down a text and show you the main points in the text, but I feel like this needs to be explored a little bit all throughout the rest of the Bible. And so I want us to think, focus on this idea for right now. Bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. If you look back at, at Exodus 14.29, the Israelites were being chased by the Egyptians, and it says that the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. And then what we find right after that is that the majority of chapter 15, right after that, is the song that the Israelites sang when they crossed over. And of course, we, we quoted from that song this morning in our call to worship. But now, after they've gotten away from Pharaoh and his army, after they've crossed the Red Sea, the singing has died down. They've experienced the sweetness of victory, and now they are enduring the agony of defeat. They went from making music to murmuring. They went from making music to murmuring. Have you ever seen a group of people that went from making music to murmuring? If you haven't, just go to your next presbytery meeting. <laughs> They'll sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," and then they'll be worried about the budget. They'll sing, "'Hold to God's unchanging hand," and then they'll talk about changing something in the confession of faith. They'll sing, "'Victory in Jesus," and then act defeated when the votes don't go their way. Listen, people will go from making music to murmuring. And when we see the children of Israel in the back, of, in the back half of Exodus 15, they've reached a place where they're saying, "'Well, we've escaped. What do we do now?' How now do we live in the absence of conflict? Some people can't live without a fight. Some people can't live without a fight. They don't know what to do with themselves when they're not in conflict. They don't know what, to, they don't know what it is to live in peace, so they, when they encounter peace, they have to create conflict. Years ago, I read about a couple that went on a missions trip to South Africa, and while they were down there, they adopted a little girl out of a run-down orphanage. And that orphanage had so many kids and not enough beds that many of those kids slept on the floor, and that little girl was one of them. They adopted her, they got her home, and they, they bought her a brand new comfortable bed, and it was the biggest bed she'd ever seen. But when they went to check in on her after she'd gone to sleep, they found her on the floor. So they picked her up, they put her back in bed, and this went on night after night. They would put her to bed. They would come in to check on her, and they would find her asleep on the floor. And they finally asked her one day, Sweetie, why do you get out of bed and lay on the floor in the middle of the night? And she said that she had slept on the floor for so long that she didn't know how to be comfortable any other way. There are many people who don't know how to be comfortable any other way than what they're used to. They're so used to the conflict. They're so used to running from the enemy. They're so used to finding that they're so used to being in a bitter place that they're comfortable with their bitterness. They're comfortable with their disappointment. And any joy is not going to help them. But when we find the Israelites now that they've come now that they've come to a place where there's only bitter waters and they call the place Mara because that Hebrew word means bitterness. 
Now keep that word in mind. Keep the word Mara in mind because we're going to see it again in a little while. But notice that they recognize where they are. They recognize where they are. They recognize that they've reached a bitter place. There's a lot of people who have been, bit, who have been in a bitter place for years and they won't recognize it. They think that they're just supposed to live with their disappointment. They think that they're supposed to live with the grudge they've been holding. To them, this is their normal, and it's been their normal for 20, 30, 40, and 50 years. No one has told them that they needed to let it go and live the life that God has called them to live. They get hung up on things for years, and they will not let it go. And I remember years ago, Paul used to preach a message. I heard him preach it several times in many revivals and camp meetings that we went to about how, ch about how chickens would get things stuck in their crawl. And he said, what happens is that people will get things stuck in their crawl for years and they'll never let it go and it will eventually kill them. And see, that's, what, that's the place that many people have reached. They've reached a place of bitterness. They can't let it go. They can't spit it out. They can't back down, and they've decided they're going to live with the offense. I read a story this week about two monks, a younger one and an older one, who were on their way back to their monastery from selling their produce in town. And they spent all day in town, and they'd sold out of everything that they took, so they were returning home empty-handed. And since they weren't carrying anything, they decided to take a shortcut that went through a creek. And as they came to a part of the creek where they would be crossing over, they found an older woman trying to, get through the, trying to cross over through the water. And she explained to the monks that her house was just on the other side of the creek. But she was afraid that the roaring waters would cause her to lose her balance and she would fall and hurt herself in the creek. And she asked these monks if they would mind picking her up on her shoulders and carrying her across. They agreed, and off they went one monk on each side, and they hoisted her up on their shoulders, and soon they were all the way across the creek, and the younger monk was saying, man, carrying that woman made my back hurt, and I think she slowed us down. It'll be dark before we get home, and he just kept on and kept on, and the older monk didn't say anything the whole time, and finally the younger monk said, surely your back hurts too, and the older monk said, no, it doesn't. I put her down hours ago. You're still, you're still carrying her. And that's the way bitterness works, right? That's the way offense works. You can't let it go. You can't put it down. And it hurts. And there might be some of us here this morning who are carrying hurts and disappointments from years ago and the people who offended you have long since forgotten all about it. The Israelites recognized their bitterness, but their problem was that they thought their bitterness was the end. They said to Moses in verse 24, the people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? Now they didn't do it here in chapter 15, but as you go on to read chapter 16 and 17, what you'll find is that anytime they ran into an inconvenience, they would just about give up and tell Moses that he should have left them in Egypt. They thought they were better off because there was food back there, there was water back there. Sure, they were, they were in slavery, but they had something to eat and they had something to drink. But the reality of the situation is there are people who will not try to move past their bitterness because every time they make an effort to move on, they run into a challenge and it causes them to tuck tail and run backwards. If the Israelites had their way, they would have tucked tail and run back through the Red Sea back over into Egypt so that they would have had food and water. But this morning we need to understand that bitterness doesn't have to be our dead end. And you know what? Moses knew that. 
That's why the next verse says, So he cried out to the Lord. So he cried out to the Lord. You know what you ought to do when you feel like you've reached a dead end? Cry out to the Lord. Now I want to show you something in these next two verses. Look at 25, Exodus 15, 25, and 26 again. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. And he said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Notice there's four things in these two verses. Number one, there's a cry. Number two, there is a commission. Number three, there is a conversion. And number four, there is a command. Notice the cry. The Bible says that Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out in an intercessory way because because the people believed that when they found the bitter waters, they had reached the end. And so Moses... Doing what, doing what a leader should, he cried out to the Lord in response to the bitterness, in response to the murmuring. And then there was a commission. And the commission was that God showed Moses a tree and presumably he told him what to do with it. That tree, so when I can imagine God speaking to Moses and he showed him the tree and he said, that tree is the solution to all your problems. If you will take that tree, if you will take that hunk of wood and you will toss it in the river, that river is going to be made sweet. That river is going to be made drinkable. All you got to do is pick that tree up and toss it in the river. Let me tell you something. Whenever you look back at Old Testament prophecy, types and shadows, that tree is a representation of the cross. That tree is a representation of the cross which is why there is a conversion after Moses takes the tree and tosses it into the river. Uh, See, what happens is your bitterness can be made sweet uh, if you will look to the cross. That bitterness can be made sweet if you will look to the cross. And see, that's the reality of the situation. People hang on to their bitterness because they do not understand what their sin cost our Savior. If you look back over in Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul tells the Ephesian church to do is he says, forgive others even as Christ has forgiven you. Even as Christ has forgiven you. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, forgive others because they deserve it. He doesn't say, forgive others because you just need to move on, although you do need to move on. The basis for Paul saying, for, for Paul telling us to forgive others is forgive others even as Christ has forgiven you. Because listen to me, people are not always worth it. But God is always worth it. And God has shown you forgiveness even in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your pride and your bitterness. God has shown you favor and God has shown you forgiveness. And so you ought to forgive others. Because whenever we're, because here's the thing, whenever we sin, we want mercy. Whenever we sin, we want grace. But whenever other people sin, we want them to get the full effects of the law. But the reality of the situation is that their sin is no more offensive than your sin. 
Their sin is no more offensive than your sin. And God still forgave you in Christ. And so you ought to forgive others. So there's a cry, there's a commission, there is a conversion because the waters went from bitter to sweet when the tree touched them. And then there is a command. And what's the command? The command is if you, in verse 26, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in His sight, pay attention to His commands, and keep all of His statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptian, for I am the Lord who heals you. The command is that if you will do what's right, you will experience the blessings of God. And if the Israelites, and think about this too, if the Israelites didn't do what was right, if the Israelites didn't obey God in Marah, they would have never got to Elam. I'll say that, I'll say that again. If they'd never obeyed God in Marah, they would have never made it to Elam. Look what they would have missed out on in verse 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now the Bible doesn't just spout out numbers for the sake of spouting out numbers. So whenever you see the numbers 12 and 70, it should remind you of something. It should remind you that, number one, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and then there were 70 elders within Israel under Moses. So there were 12 tribes of Israel, and there were 70 leaders, 70 elders in Israel. Now, you go back into the New Testament. Jesus had 12 disciples. And then there was a point in Matthew 10, I believe it's in Matthew 10, where he sent out 70 to preach. 12 and 70. And so what do those numbers mean? Whenever you get into, whenever you get into the Bible, what you find is that the number 12 represents the government of God. The number 12 represents the government of God. There's 12, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 disciples. There's 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. 12 is the government of God. The number 70 is the order of God. It is God taking chaos and bringing it into order. And so what does all that mean? What does Elam mean for Israel? What it means for Israel is that God... God's governance and God's order was with them the whole time. God had a plan for them to encounter Mara, but God also had a plan to bring them out of Mara. And so whenever you come to a bitter place in your life, you need to understand that God has a plan for your bitter place. God has a plan for your bitter place, and His plan is to turn it into a sweet place. God has a plan for your scars. God has a plan for all the disappointment that you experience. It's not for nothing. And so we see that bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. The next thing we see, and I'm, see, I'm, I'm going to try to close here in just a little bit. Preacher gets five closings, Gail. Listen, a preacher gets five closings. If he goes beyond five, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. I'm going to try to close here in just a little bit. So that's number one. <laughs> 
Bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. The next thing we see is that bitterness doesn't have to be your definition. If you look back at Ruth chapter 1, what you'll find is the story of a woman named Naomi. She and her husband Elimelech were a nice Jewish family from Bethlehem and Judah, but a famine had come upon the land and they didn't know what else to do. So they went to Moab where there was food. They had to do what was best for their family so they didn't starve. And so they went to this pagan nation of Moab. But as time went on, they stayed in Moab, and their two sons took up Moabitish wives, and one of their wives was named Orpah, and the other one was Ruth. And as time went on, Elimelech died, and then Naomi's two sons both died, and she's left with both of her daughters-in-law, and all three of these women lost their husbands, which means they've lost their security, they've lost their stability, they've lost their livelihood. And Naomi decides one day to go back to Bethlehem and Judah. But, and both of her daughters-in-law decide to pack up and go with her. But then she stops them and she says, Listen, you've been good to me and you were good to my boys, but I've got to go back home and so do y'all. And we can't just stick around here. And eventually Orpah decides to go back to Moab, but Ruth clings to Naomi. And what Ruth tells Naomi is she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And here's where we pick up the story. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, she says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Because whenever someone's got their mind made up, you can't talk to them. When someone's got their mind made up, you can't talk to them anymore. And so when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. And the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? And look at what she says in verse 20. She says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Well, where have we heard that before? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord Almighty has made me very bitter, and I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? I want to show you something in the text. Naomi's name means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. And Mara, we know from Exodus 15, means bitter. <laughs> Naomi had been to a bitter place in her life and she had been there for a long time and she had decided that this is just how life is now. If this is how life is now, then I might as well change my name. That's what she says. So when she came back, everybody saw her as pleasant. Everybody remembered her as pleasant. They said, that's Naomi. That's that pleasant woman that I remember. But now she was bitter. And she wanted to be bitter. And she was bitter for so long that it was just easier to remain bitter. And so she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm broken. I'm bitter. I'm bruised. Naomi wanted to define herself by her circumstances. She wanted to define herself by her pain. But God wasn't going to let her do that. God wasn't going to let that happen. Because if you continue reading the story of Ruth... Again, the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't make accidents in terms of what it says... 
If you read the story through the rest of chapter 1, just that one verse, notice that the author of Ruth, more than likely it was Samuel, says at the beginning of verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess. It doesn't say Mara. It doesn't say Mara returned from Moab. It says Naomi returned from Moab. And anytime you see Naomi referenced throughout the rest of the Bible, it's always Naomi. It's never Mara. Why is that? Because God didn't change her name. God didn't define her by her bitterness. Naomi tried to define herself by her bitterness, and she wanted other people to cut to define her by her bitterness. So she changed her name. She said, "Call me Mar." And there may have been other people in Israel who called her Mar from now from then on, but that's not how we are intended to remember her. We are intended to remember her by her name, Naomi. We are intended to remember her as a pleasant woman. And so she may have called herself bitter. The Israelites may have even called her bitter at her request. But God doesn't call her bitter. Let me tell you that it doesn't matter what you say about yourself. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It matters what God says about you. And I think it's interesting that we never see her referred to Mara after this because when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, ever since God changed Abram's name to Abraham, he is never referred to as Abram at any time after that unless it's to point out the fact that God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And so we don't see Naomi referred to as Mara at any time after this because God would not allow her to be defined by her bitterness. Listen, God will not allow you to be defined by your hurt, your disappointment, or your pain. You may think that this is who you are now, but that's not what God says. So bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. The next thing is we learn is that bitterness doesn't have to be our definition. And then finally, bitterness doesn't have to be our downfall. I want you to look with me into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to close after this. That's number two, Gail. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to start at verse 14. Notice what the author of Hebrews says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Notice verse 15 again. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness doesn't have to be your downfall. Notice the example that the author of Hebrews gives after that. He says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, you know that when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He, brought, he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears he he sought he could not he could not find repentance even though he sought it with tears that's what other translations will say listen what happens is that people will make choices in their lives that cause them to be bitter listen israelites had no control over the fact that the waters at mar were bitter when they got there ruth orpah 
and Naomi had no control over the fact that their husbands up and died. But Esau made a choice. Now listen, you might be here this morning and you think, I deserve this bitterness because I, I made my bed and now I have to lie in it. But what God says is don't let that root of bitterness grow up inside you and cause you to be defiled. You have an opportunity not to be defined by your bitterness. You have an opportunity not to be defined by the thing that hurts you, by the thing that disappoints you, by the thing that's let you down. Listen, there are people who might cause you to be offended, and those people have long been dead, they've been gone, they've forgotten all about it, and you might have made some poor choices that caused you to be disappointed, that caused you to be let down. But it's all in the past. You've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. Because if you don't... Bitterness will be your downfall. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If you are not careful, bitterness will be your downfall and it doesn't have to be. Bitterness doesn't have to be your dead end. Bitterness doesn't have to be your definition. And bitterness doesn't have to be your downfall. This message is for somebody this morning. Who knows? It's probably for me. Might be for my wife. I don't know. <laughs> this message is for somebody this morning. We're going to sing one last song. And as we sing, the altars are open. If you're sick and you need healing, we, we believe in the anointing with oil. We believe James 5.14 says, Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing them with oil. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Let's sing this morning. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.